scripture reading this morning. And no, I am not preaching this morning. I'd be happy to say Dan has recorded a message, but it comes from Philippians 2 1 through 11. And I don't know, I, I don't always, I'm not a very comprehensive reader. Well, maybe it's the Lord working in my life. That's, But this scripture really, I don't know, it really reached out to me today. And I know I've read it several times. And every time I read it, it seems like I, I get more out of it. So as I read it, I, I just want you to, you know, maybe others of you, you've read it probably before. And but just kind of listen to it. Maybe I'll interject some things in it, but just really take to heart what it's saying. It's, it's about humility. So that's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I think I'm grabbing this thing too hard. My hand's numb. Whew. If you have any encouragement before you united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You know, that kind of goes against the world's, they, they all want us to be individuals, to be, to be like-minded. Does that mean we all have to do the same thing? I don't believe so. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain. Concert, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. That's sometimes hard, isn't it? Others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being of very nature God, did not consider equally with God. It's kind of a interesting concept you know he he was god but he wasn't equal to god it's something to be grass but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on the cross therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So he came, came to earth as a man. He died on a cross just like a man could do. So he suffered on the earth. And now he sits at the right hand of God. So, so what does that tell us? Should, does that tell us that... Our rewards are not here on earth, our rewards are in heaven. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heavens and on earth and under the earth and on every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So I don't know, you know, maybe I read that too slow, but it's just, there's a lot of good stuff in there that uh, just really speaks to us that you know to humble us as as man you know that um, you know are we striving to be like our fellow believers 
you know, do we get along? You know, are we, are, are, are we doing things to, you know, when we do something, when we agree to something, are we doing it because we want satisfaction ourselves? Are we doing it to glorify God? You know, Dan's always saying, do we come to church to get something out of it or to give? I think that falls along with that. Please, please take time to read that again. And I think at this time, Dash is up, right? Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you all this morning in this way. It's, for me, it's better than nothing, better than not being with you at all. However, I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to being back with you all in person, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Before starting in on this morning's message, I want to thank all of you for, for your prayers, your text messages, your cards, your gifts, all the ways you guys have reached out to April and me. And, and uh, just so you know, <clears throat> being a part of this church family is such a blessing for us uh, in all kinds of ways. Secondly, I want to clarify just a tad more about worship before we move off that topic. As we've studied, worship is about giving to God. It's never, ever about getting anything from Him. In other words, we give worship because of all that He has already given us. That's why we worship. We're giving back to Him what He's already given us. As we dug deeper into that, an aspect of worship we discovered is how we can worship God through our sacrificial giving to others. Matthew 25, 40, you guys probably remember this, Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We're giving, uh, as we do for others, we're giving that back to the Lord. So if we are to give worship to our Lord in this way, there logically has to be a recipient, a getter. Just some great examples of this are, are preachers who give sermons, teachers who teach lessons, so hopefully there are getters who receive those sermons and who receive those lessons with enthusiasm or with conviction, with intense motivation, right? The reason I wanted to clarify that was because I feared I was coming across too strongly when I proclaimed that we were never to gather together to worship with the goal of getting anything. Don't come to church on Sunday morning expecting to get anything. And I may have come across too strongly in expressing that. Romans 12.1 helps clarify that for us. Present ourselves as living and holy sacrifices, and then I'll in that verse, which is our spiritual service of worship. This verse perfectly describes how we should gather together on Sunday mornings. We should come presenting ourselves as living and holy sacrifices. As true worshipers, it is essential... As true worshipers, it is essential we be motivated, it is essential we be focused, it is essential we be prepared to give to God honor, homage, to give service through our sacrifices. Will we receive anything all along the way? Well, I hope so. As the guy who is giving through a message from God's Word, I'm hoping there are getters out there who are receiving it. The same would be true for our teachers. The same would be true for everyone involved in our music. The same is true for Levi and Danny and Rachel and Nick. 
they're giving their abilities through the internet technology stuff in our service presentation. And there are recipients who benefit from that. Putting this all together, ponder the possibility of a church family, that's us, and all of us seek out the myriad of ways to worship our God through sacrificial giving to others, overflowing even. Givers of every size, every shape, every kind of talent, every kind of, of abilities. And we're putting on literal display our great desire to worship our Lord through our sacrificial giving. Amen? I'm going to assume everyone said amen to that. So as we go to our first slide, I want to start here on Romans 8.14. I know it's not Romans 3, which by the way, if, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, Romans 3 really is where we're going to go. But Romans 8.14 presents us with such a strong statement. For those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. And daughters. How would the Holy Spirit lead us? Through the growth of His fruit through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. An amazing reality, just an amazing reality, is that when the Holy Spirit leads us, He is actually leading us into a worshipful way of life. Now, as we go to that next slide, you all know by now I'm committed to review. Most of the time, we need to hear something several times before it is cemented into our hearts and minds. That's what review is for. This review is a tad different, yet it still serves the important purpose of bringing truths from God's Word back into your hearts and minds. With this review, we're going to summarize the path necessary for all of you who want to maximize your spiritual gifts. Put another, let's put it another way. All of you who want to maximize your worship of our Lord, and hopefully that's just a... a a goal for all of us that we want to maximize the worship uh, directed towards our, our Lord and God. As you all can see, I've framed it as a matter of choice. But hasn't that always been true? No one can make you do anything, not even God himself. I suppose he could, but he typically doesn't. Nobody can make us do anything. If we don't want to do it, we're not going to do it. So, uh, so that's why we framed it as choice. Let's run through these. First, if you have any desire to be a son or daughter of God, you will choose to not quench the Holy Spirit as it commands in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you will choose to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice, your spiritual service of worship, as it's commanded in Romans 12.1. Thirdly, you will choose to live vertically as opposed to living horizontally and following the command of Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fourth, finally, you will choose to let God's will become your will as described in Romans 12, 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Can you all imagine... What a powerful church family we would be if we all committed ourselves to these four scriptural truths or scriptural commands as the way that we would live our lives in front of each other. We're going to move to the next slide now. And we're going to pay attention, and moving to the slide, we're going to pay attention to a warning. 
If you all remember way, way back in August or September of 2020, I don't really remember the exact date, I introduced the phrase humble elite. Now stay with me all the way through this. As believers in Christ, we are certainly elite in the sense that an unbeliever, a non-believer, does not possess the riches that we possess. No one but we believers in Jesus Christ possess a future eternal life in an indescribable paradise. We're the only ones who possess that. No one but we believers are called sons and daughters of the one God, the God Most High. Non-believers don't have that. Given all that we have, wouldn't we have more right to be the most arrogant people on the face of the earth than anyone else? we would have more right towards that. Would it not be truth to say to every billionaire out there, would it not be truth to say something like this? What you have, Mr. Billionaire, compared to what I have is like comparing dust mites to the stars of the universe. Wouldn't that be the truth? Yet we're called, and now uh, this is the scripture we're going to look at, dig into into this morning a little bit. Yet we're called by Romans 12, 3 to be exceedingly humble. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. As we go to the next slide, that slide describes more specifically how we are elite. Again, this is a bit of review since we studied uh, these verses uh, in the fall of 2020, sometime back in 2020, and we're going to run through these and bring them back into our hearts and minds. These are uh, some of the many reasons why we can say we're elite. Ephesians 1.3 tells us we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Only believers in Christ have this. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that we were chosen before the foundation, before the creation of the world. That's true for all believers in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.5 tells us we were predestined for adoption as sons and, of course, of daughters as well. Uh, believers. That pertains to believers. Ephesians 1.7 tells us we have full redemption, full forgiveness of all of our trespasses. Only believers possess that. And finally, Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are God's workmanship. And if you remember, some translations rightly have the word masterpieces. We are God's masterpieces. And we were created for good works. We were created for awesome works, powerful, powerful works, which God prepared beforehand, before we were even born. He knew <laughs> that he would be calling us and that he would make us into his masterpieces and he already had these works for us uh, going forward. That is so elite. We are definitely elite church family. But as we move to the next slide, we're going to be studying the other side of the coin, which is humility. It's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? A humble elite. Almost an oxymoron. How can we be both elite and also humble? I'd say this. We can only be humble and elite 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because from the world's perspective, there would be no need to be both elite and humble. You guys know as well as I do, as the world has stated, if you got it, flaunt it, right? The first thing Paul does in 12.3 of Romans is he establishes his authority. In other words, why should anyone listen to him? How is Paul any different from any other street preacher or any other philosopher espousing his own ideas of truth? Where does Paul's validity come from? But in establishing his authority, Paul doesn't arrogantly, arrogantly point to himself. He doesn't trumpet his resume. Instead, he points to his God. Through the grace given to me. Now, Paul isn't talking about his salvation by God's grace. He's not talking about that. The reason why we know that is because our salvation through grace, our salvation doesn't automatically convey authority to us. Everybody follow that? Our salvation by grace doesn't automatically convey authority to us. Instead, Paul believes his authority comes from God showering his grace upon him in his day-to-day -day living. Paul's capacity to preach, his capacity to teach, his ability to, to maintain in, in, in the midst of persecution, to persevere, Paul's capacity to write what eventually becomes scripture, all of that, all of that flows to him through God's grace showered upon him. Therefore, Paul completely disappears under this flooding of God's grace. That's got to be pretty humbling, right? That is so humbling to recognize that it's not through your own power that you're doing this. It's through God's faithfulness to you, His grace showering down upon you. How humbling that is. It should be interesting to us to know that whenever Paul describes himself outside of God's work and presence within him, this description that he uses for himself often comes out like what we find in 1 Timothy 1.15. Let's read that together. 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's the proper perspective to possess, isn't it? I am a sinner. When a person recognizes that truth, then deeply desires to move away from that truth, God is so eagerly, so anticipating to embrace that person. That's exactly what we see in Luke 7, 47. You guys remember uh, Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home and the woman shows up with a vial of perfume. Now, speaking of that woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried his feet with her hair, then anointed the feet with her perfume, speaking about that woman, here's what Jesus says. For this reason I say to you, talking to Simon the Pharisee, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little 
loves little. On our next slide, Paul takes us to the therefore. Therefore, even though there are all kinds of ways we believers are the most elite of all people because of who our Lord is, because of what he has done with our lives, we are still sinners. Paul says this, Therefore, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. With that, I wanted to describe two attitudes that can creep into our lives and cause us to live with astounding arrogance. The first is the more common attitude. We witness this attitude a lot, a lot among churchgoers. I think this is really one of the most common common attitudes that churchgoers go. Now, notice I've said churchgoers. So I'm, I'm lumping a lot of people into, into that, uh, into that uh, noun, churchgoers. I call it the doing God a favor attitude. And really, I'm doing God a favor. It's arrogance against God. Let me illustrate it this way. At the beginning of my third grade year, Miss and single, if she had asked me, I would have married her on the spot. I wouldn't even have bothered to check out if she was a believer or not. All she had to do was ask, and I was hers forever. The problem, other than being a third grader, of course, was all the other boys in the third grade class felt the same way. We were smitten beyond repair. So you had this gang of boys who were clamoring for her attention, and the best way to get that was to volunteer for any task or jobs that she might mention. She might mention a task, and every boy in the class, he'd raise his arm. One afternoon, I landed the job of eraser cleaner. For you are under 30, we used to have chalkboards in our classrooms. And chalk is very dusty. That meant erasers had to be cleaned really pretty often. And the best way to clean an eraser was to just... Uh, Take all the racers, go outside, find a sidewalk, and then you just bang that eraser on the sidewalk until you thought it was clean. Or, or a brick wall would do the same thing. You'd bang it against the brick wall to, to clean the, the eraser. In order to score points with Miss Williams, the love of my life, I determined to do the best job possible cleaning those erasers. I would win her love by cleaning erasers. I finished up the job. I took the racers back into the classroom. Miss Williams was sitting at her, head, at her desk, head down. She was grading papers. And as I put the erasers back into the tray, Miss Williams spoke and she said, Thank you, John. Thank you, John. John! My name is Dan. Didn't she even know me? It completely devastated me. Someone I dearly loved, loved with all my might, did not even know my name. Now, here comes the important part. Who represents Jesus in the story, me or Miss Williams? I do, right? What the story shows is how so many people arrogantly treat Jesus. Jesus tells us, I have come so that you can have life. You can be saved for all of eternity. We answer with, well, isn't that nice? We pat him on the head, and we rarely give him another thought. Oh, sure, we might do some churchy things every so often. 
we come to church once in a while, we come to church regularly, we put a, a Bible on the coffee table in our house, we put a couple of dollars in the offering plate, we show up, we say a prayer when things might get rough in our lives, we, we turn to him then, of course, because everybody says he answers prayers, so we do all these churchy things. But if he presses us to have a real relationship with him, if he presses us for that because of his amazing love for us, we pat him on the head and say, oh, you know what? Saving me was enough. You just run along now and go save someone else. You know, just be happy I let you save me, okay? Sometimes we treat God with such arrogance uh, by making him basically a second-class citizen in our lives, by making him second or third or fourth in importance in our lives. Uh, it's, it's just so arrogant, but sadly, it's also so common among all the myriad of churchgoers uh, today. Then there's a second attitude. This is, I can do everything better attitude. This one, the first one affects our relationship with God. When we have that kind of attitude, that's, uh, that affects our relationship with God. This one affects our relationship within the church family. This attitude tra triggers when we examine the job another person in the church family is doing, and then we declare he or she should be doing that job differently. Here's what I would do. Now, you all are waiting on my next statement, aren't you? What is the proper response to that? You might be thinking I would advise this way. Well, if you think you can do it better, then you get up and do it. No, no, that's not the correct response. That answer just reinforces the arrogance, just allows for the arrogance to be demonstrated. I want you to look at these two pictures. Which picture, the one on the left or the one on the right, which picture indicates a stronger relationship? Think of it in terms of marriage. April and I, I'm going to confess, looking at these two pictures, April and I have operated both ways in our marriage. We've operated like the picture on the left and the one on the right. But when we've oper operated in one way particular, that way has grown the strongest. And it's the picture on the right, right? When April and I have been able to operate more and more, more and more habitually, like the picture on the right, that's when our, our marriage has flourished. It's grown. It's done all kinds of wonderful things. And I'm, I would guess that's positively true for every married couple. Now let's apply that same principle to our church family. If you see something that can be improved, you know, the church family is doing lots of activities, lots of things are going on within a church family, especially our church family. We're, we're doing lots of stuff, guys, which is to our credit. But in all that, let's suppose you're sitting and you're, you're watching something, and you think, well, that could be improved. It is far, far better for you you know, whoever that person is who is in charge of that. Far, far better for you to come alongside that person and take their hand than for you to stand in front of them 
and point your finger. Take the person by the hand, so to speak, to encourage, to offer help, to just be there, to listen. Take them by the hand. But for crying out loud, don't do it from the bleachers. Get down on the floor with a person. Hold their hand first of all. I guarantee you, whoever that person is who's ever in charge, what they will love you for doing that. That will be such an encouragement for them for you to do that. When we live with either attitude, I'm going to sum this up. When we, when we live with either attitude, when we live with either, God, I'm kind of doing you a favor here. I just am. God, I, yeah, you're in my life, but I want you to get in line. You're like third or fourth or fifth place down the line there. Or the, the other attitude, I can do that job better than him. What we will hopefully realize is that we're operating without sound judgment. In fact, when we think too highly of ourselves, that's always the opposite of sound judgment. We'll examine that more next week. Meanwhile, I hope all of you will spend some time in self-reflection. With all that Scripture has shown us today, where do you stand? How do you operate? How do you operate in your relationship with Jesus Christ? How do you, how do you honestly operate in that relationship? Then look at your relationships with people, and especially when you look at people who are in charge of other aspects of, of our church family operations. How do you operate in those things? Look, I just hope and pray that you'll be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Just do that. Just be open to his leading. He will guide you in the way that you should operate in those two circumstances. And I pray you will desire to be a son or, or a daughter of God Almighty our Lord. With that, Dan, I'm going to turn it all over back to you. Once again, church family, I look forward to being with you again, hopefully soon. Love you.